I can say one thing that I don't like to see in a technical writer, and that is that a kind of person who only wants to describe how it works. So a good technical writer is somebody who describes how it is used. And in order to do that, we tie all of these vision pieces together. Welcome, Patricia Boswell. So delighted to have you on the show today. Thank you for coming. Thank you. I'm pretty excited to be here, Sam. Well, I got a chance to work with you and meet you at Google uh, when I was in Google Cloud. You're a staff technical writer at Google, and you've been there for almost 16 years. That's right. How the worlds of documentation and training and enablement come together with technology in cloud computing and the particular lens that we're taking in our conversations are, is about open source data, open data, open systems, how these things come together to create a sort of a space of possibility. So I just thought that having the level of intellectual horsepower that you put into understanding technology such that it's, it's explainable, it's adoptable, you coach teams on this, you cause good documentation to happen, but documentation is really sort of cognitive stairway to heaven, right? For somebody to be able to walk up to understand like what they're supposed to be doing. So I'm just delighted to have you here. And I, I think it's going to be a really fun conversation. You have a really spectacularly eclectic and diverse background for someone with your stature in the technology industry. You do too. <laughs> yeah, I'm an odd duck. <laughs> right back at you. Yeah, my background is, you know, I started out in as an English major, actually education teaching than I did lit, but throughout my entire academic career in lit, I taught composition and I was always sort of a nerd. I made my way through college by doing medical transcription on the side, which meant that I had to use a lot of different transcription machine devices and more processing languages. And so I brought that into my composition and teaching. And um, so I think I was really a tech writer from the very beginning. I wrote my first quick start guide probably 1988, when my students wanted to give me papers in my composition class that were on a typewriter, and I forced them to use the word processing lab that was then available, and they didn't have any guides, so I wrote the guide for them. And so my classes, the first week always became how to use this computer system. And then my last class that I taught in 94, I pulled them onto Unix systems, and there was no documentation at all. The only handout that they had was the first command to learn how to use Unix was said and awk. <laughs> wow. So I wrote a guide for my students and uh, had them email their papers to me. And I corrected them using uh, Emacs macros and made them look their code up so that I wasn't copy editing their writing. I was actually giving them codes and forcing them to learn. So for me, I think that was probably one of the first most impactful realizations about the power of technology to teach. So I wasn't effectively writing documentation, but I was using technology to enable people to learn how to look at their writing and develop it. And that was a challenging audience to win over, right? The, the technology adoption by sort of hardcore literature folk can't have been super easy. Yeah, that's, that's interesting. Actually, it was like, it was poor freshmen and sophomores. So as a lit major, you have to teach freshmen and sophomore composition classes, poor guys. But, you know, my colleagues really thought 
that I was an odd duck. Like they didn't understand why I would use these computing systems, but now it's all the norm. I think they resisted at first because it was new, but then once I got them on board with it, you know, they realized the value of it because it gave them a leg up. So it was great. And I'm just kind of interested in the fact that you started out in this amazing space. You start out in cognitive neuroscience, you became a software engineer, and now you're a technical advisor across many high-tech companies and the chief strategy officer for Datastax. I just think that's kind of amazing that we're connected here in this medium with such different diverse backgrounds. It's pretty wild, but at the same time, uh, I think there's something fundamentally the same, which is it's all about seeking for knowledge and making that knowledge productive and procedural. So right. the fascination of cognitive neuroscience and AI and software is all about how do we augment human intelligence? How do we make individuals more competent, more capable to take care of what they care about? Right. So you and I have just been solving two sides of the same coin. The shift in the structure of the industry is kind of the shift of, of our careers too, right? There's a, there's a fluidity at, at the core of it. Right, right. And the background, again, for learning and understanding. I agree. Yeah. And I really like the the fact that you took very intelligent people. It's common for those of us who who have bachelor of science degrees, you know, masters, PhDs in technical fields to kind of dismiss the intelligence of liberal artists. But a literature student is extremely intelligent. They're just not a technical expert. So I think that's a great microcosm of what we try to do in technology adoption is to say, we assume that the person on the other side of this terminal is really, really smart. They just don't know what we know. So how do we make it approachable? How do we have a user model, right? How do we start doing you know, documentation to be able to you know, break those boundaries? Yeah, that's so true. One of the things that I realized in my journey from academia into high tech is that there's a little bit of unfortunate arrogance in high tech that I kind of adopted in, in the beginning and thought, oh, I'm, I'm just a, a lit major. I don't know this stuff. I wanted to tell you a story about this sort of thing coming full circle for me, where my first .sig file, you remember those .sig files? Absolutely. It, it had a quote from Leslie Marmon Silko, who is an author who wrote a book in 1977 called Ceremonies. She's a Native American writer. And there's this quote that says something along the lines of, you don't have anything if you don't have the story. So I put that in my .sig file. And when I got into high tech, I thought, oh, it sounds like a literature person and now I'm a technical writer, so I'll take it out. But I realized as we've come full circle, especially in the world of developer relations and now developer relations itself is kind of a, a thing across the high tech space, um, they started developing this whole idea of a narrative and thinking about the developer narrative and what is the user flow? What's the, the narrative of the product? And all of those things center around stories. So no matter how technical the topic is, the framing is always the story. You can make something more approachable by framing it as a story. Yeah, the frame is kind of how our mind grabs hold of it and works with it. And I think there's a, there's a big, there's an underlying evolutionary arc here where, you know, once upon a time, it was the, it was the software codes themselves, right? It was the code we wrote that was scarce and the programmers were scarce. So just having something, man, it was cool. But now that stuff is all abundant. So the new scarcity is like, do people even want it, right? How do you attract people in a, in a cloud native world, right? How do you attract people in a world of GitHub to an open source project where you've got 
literally tens of millions of open source projects, the differentiator is, is there a frame people can grab? Is the story compelling enough that someone's attracted to stop what they already know and what they're already doing, to come hang out with you and check out your stuff and spend enough time developing a little bit of competence to use it and, and become a, a member of, of your community. So the, the techniques you've been developing over all this time, I think, are kind of the razor's edge of how we get people's attention. And I would even say that it's always been the case that in order for us to wrap our minds around it, we always have to tell the story. Even back in those in the early days, I remember a software engineer I worked with, Jared, back in B2B e-commerce company, and it was an HTML, front-end HTML system e-commerce system. And he was trying to explain to his stakeholders, the engineers in the room who are more senior than he was, how this thing worked. And I'll never forget, they were having a really hard time wrapping their mind around the fact that, you know, HTML connection to the uh, web server was stateless, right? Mm -hmm. And, uh, and they kept expecting there to be like a stateful connection, you know, you pull up a web page, get on to the, uh, to the store and you buy it. And he, so he basically broke it down for them like a story saying, you know, the web browser picks up the phone, calls the, the web server, the web server says hello and hangs up. <laughs> and he just kind of hammered that story. And it was a very simplistic thing that I think you could tell to any person, whether they're technical or not. But he actually needed it to, help to tell that to his stakeholders. And then they came back and they understood it and he was able to move forward that way. So, but I think it becomes more and more apparent, like you said, in this world today, where there are so many options out there. And the differentiator is how you simplify it, how you make it easier to understand and use and fit your mental model. And it was something that we were really putting a lot of effort into and changing um, while I got to work with you at Google, right? We, I think we doubled the size of the cloud computing and cloud platform writing staff while I was there because there was, I think, you know, growing sense that in order to break through in the market, your documentation was going to be what engineers took as relative quality of the code, right? If your documentation was poor, probably the code and the service poor. If the documentation was good, told you enough thought had gone in that the, that the experience itself was, was actually going to be pretty good. I think that's continued. Since we worked together, you've changed roles from cloud to core data. So I'm really curious to know, is that sort of sensibility around, um, you know, the, the overwhelming importance of the quality of documentation and user modeling, you know, sort of still there in core data for you? Yeah, in fact, that was one of the things that lured me to this opportunity is that I'm able to work with a great director who really believes in, I'm just going to use my term for it, I call it the, the product pie, where, you know, to make a really effective product, you have pie slices of contributors. It's not just SWEs. You need to have product managers, technical writers, user researchers, you know, UX designers and SWEs all working together to make great products. So now, you know, this is something that that this leader believed in. And uh, it was an opportunity for me to help structure a team and put that together with that idea in mind. So now I'm working very closely with that team. And it's exciting because oftentimes documentation is sort of seen as an afterthought. So now that we're kind of involved at the ground level, we can set the direction so that we can have an effective user service. So sometimes the documentation is the, is the main surface that somebody has to the product itself, especially when we're talking about like APIs or things like that. Yeah, in a way, documentation is, uh, is, is, the, is an anchor of that team because it's, it's traceability for 
user experience. And I think one of the things that we got to do and the, that made me happy when I was um, uh, doing cloud DevOps at Google was we, we transformed the basic nature of a team from what was seen as two in a box, which was a PM and a software engineering lead, to making it a quad, which was uh, a PM, a software engineering lead, UX lead, and a tech writer. And we did that in a pilot that was transformative. I, I think now that's kind of the ideal core of the two pizza team. Like if you're, if you're building a microservice or you're building an application, you're moving quickly, you're breaking things, but what you don't break is the, you know, the affinity of the user and a written conceptual user model. So I think that's, that's kind of how, how the world has changed around, not just open source uh, and cloud native computing, but just how we think about software in a world where software is abundant, right? Right. Can you tell me what two pizza team means? Oh, yes. this is an Amazon expression, and it's very vivid. Uh, I would love to use something else because it's kind of a funny, uh, a funny metaphor, and not everybody likes pizza. Uh, personally, I'm violently allergic to wheat, so I can't eat much pizza. But uh, you know, the, the apocryphal story is that Jeff Bezos said that if it takes more than two pizzas to feed your team, your team's too big. Oh. Right. So that kind of inverted the common sense from saying, hey, I've got 100 human beings in my software delivery organization. So let me break that up properly. I'm going to need like 60 software engineers and I'm going to have like 20 QA and I'm going to have like 10 PMs and 10 10 UXers. Mm -hmm. And then you end up with these functional silos where everybody's arguing about kind of whose responsibility is to do what. Everybody's taking care of doing a really good job of engineering or product management or, you know, UX or PM. But they're not moldable and they're not incented to collaborate that much. So breaking it down to a two pizza team, the idea is everybody you need is in there with all the functional competencies they need. Right. So you're going to have like seven, eight, nine, ten people. And so you should have a quad, like, you know, technical writer, UX, uh, software lead, a PM. And then, you know, maybe you have a product owner, somebody who's really, you know, representing the technical user. Maybe you've got a couple more suites. Maybe it's more of a, maybe more, more of a, a user experience uh, heavy stage on the journey, right? So right. maybe for, for the first few sprints, your two pizza team is, you know, bias 2XR. But that that idea of a, of a modular structure lets you then take that 100 human beings that you've got and give them more sense of, of fluidity, right? And especially because most, most practicing engineers these days uh, have, you know, under 12 years of experience. Uh, and at a certain point, you, you tend to migrate out into something else, maybe become a manager. Um, there's a lot of fluidity. If you're, if you're in your 20s, if you're in your early 30s, you want to learn stuff. You don't want to be stuck in the old models that you and I grew up in of you're going to do this job for, you know, for 20 years and, and get your gold watch. It's more like, no, how do I do a bit of this? How do I learn some of that? How do I have more experiences? So there's, there's a lot more a lot more fluidity enabled by the declaration of a, of a two pizza team, I think. Yeah, I think it's a continuation of the startup model, you know, because I came into technology being this in the 90s with the dot, you know, dot com. And there was just so much demand that you could just pick your role and contribute in some way. So I was front end software developer, a couple of companies and also a tech writer. I also did like, for example, I did some UX research for documentation in Google cloud. They had some uh, extra money hanging around and there was a pause that they didn't know what to do with it. So I said, let's do some research <laughs> on our docs. So I think if you're the kind of person that says, I'm on this lane and I'm only going to swim in my lane, you're going to miss out on broadening 
your ability to create a great product. Ultimately, you can kind of come back to figuring out, you know, what your focus area is going to be. But I totally agree that, you know, having that that model where you're thinking about covering all your bases makes a lot of sense. Yeah, we're in an age where collaboration is king, right? So diverse and inclusive teams to bring more ideas in from the outside world and have different and better lenses, you know, produces uh, breakout successes. Slack famously has one of the most diverse uh, and inclusive cultures anywhere. And so the range of things that they're able to, to do and their breakout success has been, has been super interesting. So we're kind of moving from I-shaped, deep, narrow specialization to T-shaped. Yeah, you have to have a deep, narrow specialization, but you need to, you need to be able to understand a bit about, you know, everything else. And I think to that end, you, you have a unique perspective as the, as the person who's accountable for making sure that the user has actually been thought through and people haven't just made sort of jumping logical errors, right? There's right. The, the insight, but also right. um, the quality assurance effectively that the, that the product's going to be right. good. So you have a point of view, I think, on what makes a great product manager. Maybe we can go through the through the through the quad, right? The the PM, the tech writer, the UXer and and the Angeli. Like let's just spend, you know, maybe a minute on each one from from your point of view. Like what what makes a great PM? Well, I think there's certain themes underneath all of them, and I would say that it's somebody who is collaborative, like you said. They're flexible. They're also curious and they have vision. And I think that applies to all of the disciplines. Mm-hmm. I think vision is key. So I'd say that for me, when I look at a PM, I look for product vision and market vision. I look for that spark. Where do they see this product going? And then I think the collaboration is next, which is, okay, you know, I'm going to push you on that vision. I'm going to ask you some hard questions about that vision as an experienced tech writer. I, I know about some of these things. And if they collaborate with me and they're flexible and curious about my point of view, then together we create something that's bigger than either one of us could alone. And I think for, so switching to engineers, I like to see the technical vision in the engineer that manifests in, you can't do it today, but walk over to their desk and uh, look over their shoulder and say, what you doing? And uh, their eyes light up and they tell you about their code and they tell you about how this all is going to work or they whiteboard it. And you can just see where they, you know, they're going to optimize it. They're going to make it go faster. It's going to process more information, whatever, when you see that or, you know, reduce the amount of code even, for example, um, scale it up. All of that is what I see in a, you know, valuable in an engineer along with always the flexibility and collaboration piece, mm-hmm. right? So they own the technical piece of that. You know, their product owner is they're, they're going to stand behind this. It's sort of like, I don't know, the mental model I have is like the PM is the architect and the engineer is the actual, you know, the systems underneath the carpenter or the, um, mm-hmm. you know, the, the plumber or the electrician. And uh, the UX is the, is the designer. What's the flow like? How are people going to come? How many people are, is this supposed to manage? What's their experience feel like? And then the technical writer is, uh, my fellow tech writers are going to not like me when I say this, but I think we're sort of salespeople. <laughs> That's fascinating. That was the last word I expected to hear you say. I, I want to hear more. Uh, I think we do non-sales selling. You know, it isn't that we're, we're concrete salesmen, like, we're not selling concrete, but we're, we're using the most concrete non-smoothie terms 
possible Mm -hmm. to help people get to their goal. Mm -hmm. And that is essentially non-sale selling. Mm -hmm. So we think it's a, it's a limitation of a, like, I can say one thing that I don't like to see in a technical writer. And that is that a kind of person who only wants to describe how it works. So a good technical writer is somebody who describes how it is used. And in order to do that, we tie all of these vision pieces together. So we create this narrative that ties the market vision and the functional vision and the user experience. You know, we're partnering with UX to make sure that we're, you know, documenting the experience. And then it just flows from there. I don't know if that makes any sense to you, but that's how I see it. I see it like you can't just say to your PM person, I don't care about what you wrote on the front page about that. That's just crap. Developers don't care about that. What you do need to do as a technical writer is go up to your 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 PM or your your marketer and say, you know what, this is a little fluffy. We need to make it a little more concrete. And I want words that I can use down in my documentation so that when the person who's coming in who decides to use it, the technology based on your description, starts using it, some of these concepts that were described right in the beginning start resonating all the way down through to the guts of the system. That's Mm -hmm. when you know you have something really solid. Mm -hmm. That's my two cents. That's fantastic. What do you think? What's your... I think I have little to add, you know, for for product management, as as you identified, you know, vision and collaboration somewhere in there is the ability to... uh, the ability to compromise and be pragmatic while also holding kind of the paradox of, of, of pragmatism and ambition. I always think about Tom Sawyer, probably the best product manager ever, right? <laughs> you know, come paint this fence. Like it's a lot of work, but it's going to be beautiful. And people are like, wow, this is so, so great. I'll, I'll pay you to paint your fence. Uh, so, you know, the PM figures out how to, how to, how to get the system working in their favor because the odds are always against starting anything new. It doesn't matter what you're doing in life for an end lead you know, respecting the need to build something that's going to be used. And, and, and I think it comes down to metrics, right? That's something Google's really good at is, you know, engine leads tend to really think about uh, adoption and active users as a signal that they're building properly. And that's a really unique point of view, right? Sort of an adoption-centric engineering approach, uh, not lessening the technical excellence, but adoption-centric engineering solves a lot of problems in terms of being T-shaped because you want to be curious and we want to find out why the PM thinks these things and why does a technical writer think that what you're coming up with architecturally is too complex for the user to understand and yeah. you know, why does the UX, how did they deploy their curiosity to understand you know, needs of users that, that aren't met yet and bridging that into the technology is important. Yeah, I think the most gratifying experience that I had, I came to uh, Google through uh, what eventually became Google Earth, but it was a company called Keyhole. And I worked uh, closely with one of the engineering founders, Mark Aubin. We would just like, I just walk over and say, hey, what are you working on? And Or he'd say, hey, Patricia, come on over. Let me let me show you what I'm doing here with this. I'd say, okay, tell me, how's it, how's it going to go? And then he'd, he'd show me and I'd say, okay, so you want, so, you, so the person is going to do this and then they're going to do this other thing. And then they have to exit that and go do this other thing and then remember what they did before come back and do it again. And uh, he stopped and he looked at me and he said, oh man, you're right. Because I was thinking about how I would document it. Mm-hmm. And uh, and then I remember Brian McClendon stepping in because he wanted to know what the hell I was doing bothering Mark. <laughs> he looked at me and was listening to the conversation and he, he said, 
you're shaping the product Mm -hmm. in sort of in a shocked voice. And I said, well, yeah, I am. Right. So I think we all shape the product in different ways. And so that, that kind of collaboration. And I always liked two pizza teams. You can get a lot done with two pizza teams. You can. There's so much shared context and trust, right? You can yeah. create a safe space where you can say dumb things and ask dumb questions. And, and that's that's really important. And there's an egolessness that can get made in a good team like that. And I think that's a really important part of, of any of these roles. Like a, an egoless UXer doesn't feel that they need to be the person designing everything or doing all the research, but they, they will believe that they are the cause of research happening. And they'll teach the team, here's how you do a UXR. We're going to do a UXR sprint together, right? It's about giving away your knowledge so that it can come back in a, in a stronger form. And I think mm-hmm. the tech writer component that's often under, underappreciated is just how technical tech writers are, right? You're looking at a very complex, multivariate problem across different releases of software, different versions, different bits of code that are supposed to use it and work with it properly as demonstrations and as, as documentation samples, you know, maybe SDKs and fully functional samples. And all of those have a huge amount of weight, right? Gravity that you have to carry along with you, right? When I look at the technical writer for you know, who, who stands out really greatly in my mind is uh, Jared Botti. Jared Botti. Yeah. I was just thinking about that. I was like, oh, he's describing Jared. <laughs> right. As, as Kubernetes was growing up, right? Oh my gosh. So many changes to deal with. And then the, the product documentation, the open source documentation, because the open source component makes it hard. And then being able to give away all the credit and do things like organize a write the docs day where 30 people from the community can get together. And no matter how much any of them put in, they all can take the credit together and share the credit. Be like, hey, we we really improved the state of docs. There's a product ownership mentality in people like Jared that great technical writers and any of the other great um, greats in their their domains demonstrate. uh, Curious to get your sense of, you know, what it means to be a product owner. Well, I think that for myself, I'd say that I like to see design and everything and patterns. So focus on the patterns, the user patterns, the user flow, sort of the meaning making of the product, like what is Kubernetes about? And, you know, what problems will it solve and what it's intended to solve? And so I think when you can get on board that, you know, from that perspective, you can start to feel motivated about it. Once you are, you know, really passionate about it. So for example, I'm thinking about some of my earlier days in, in the uh, keyhole and which became Google Earth and then the, the graphics engine underneath that. I think about um, how complicated it can be. A product owner is making it simpler over and mm. over again, just mm. relentless on that. Uh, because people aren't interested, they're, they're interested in the end goal. You're trying to sell them on like, Hey man, you know, this, this thing, you're going to be able to load all your, your visual data into the system, stitch it together, and you're going to have a flyable earth and you're going to be able to put layers on top of it with roads and all kinds of other, uh, different elements that make it literally a globe that you can explore on different levels. That's exciting, but it's pretty complicated because there's a lot of pieces in there. So you want to make sure that that you're trying to simplify the narrative and simplify, you know, and if you can't simplify the narrative, then you need to come back and simplify the product a little bit. A really good owner thinks about is the next person. And I think as technical writers, I always think about, we have two audiences. We have the people who are reading the documentation and using the system, but we also have our stakeholders who are working for us. We write for them as well, because they may have to take over our work. 
So that's a really good point. I think that's what I see. I see as like somebody who really takes a great deal of responsibility, but isn't thinking about their craft, right? They're thinking about the problem that the product is going to solve in the world. Yeah. So what I, what I heard you say was a great product owner sees everything as design. They focus on patterns and storytelling, meaning making. They're relentless on simplicity. And not only are they thinking about the next user of the service, but the next user of their code. Somebody's going to take over the code and write code, replacing them on the team, maybe in six months or, or maybe a year. Or the next evolution of their code. Sure. Right? Like if you're owning this thing, how is it going to grow? That too. Yeah. And I, I particularly love the focus on simplicity. Um, there's a great essay by Joseph Painter about the collapse of complex civilizations. And what stood out for me in that, in that essay was that uh, as a side effect of human cognition, we add complexity. Like yeah. we just can't help it. We just keep like gilding the lily, right? We've got all these expressions about adding stuff. And then you've got at the other end, you've got great designers, um, you know, maybe a Steve Jobs quote of design not being done when you can add nothing more, but when you can remove nothing more. He might've been re-quoting uh, Eames, of course. Uh, you know, I don't, I don't know. Yeah. But that drive for, you know, for taking the fur off that invariably grows just by adding humans to a system, uh, super important. And then the respect that you have to pay in modern software in open source projects, like who's going to be the new, new maintainer? How do I bring new people on board to understand the code? There's as much need for great documentation of the product and how to interact with it as a developer, if it's an API or a technical product. But there's enormous amount of value in internal documentation of the code itself to respect that this code could be in production in some form or another for 10 years. Yeah. You're just the first developer you know, to the fight, but there's many coming after you. How can you make their life better? There's a responsibility element, you know? So obviously yeah. if you're, aware, you're responsible for that. So you think beyond the, you know, the immediate goal and you think about the whole life cycle. There's almost a need for like a Hippocratic oath for uh, for software <laughs> development, right? For you know, for for all of us doing this collaborative engineering. To be a good product owner, you can take on any different role and be an owner in that role. But oftentimes, I think your your role will change as well. Really good product owners don't think about their role so much again as about the goal and how they can contribute to that whole growth of the product and you know, tying back again into the two pizza team, sometimes you have to take on those different roles. Mm -hmm. So yeah, the person that needed to do the job is uh, rotate, you know, they've rotated off the team, job still has to be done, you do it, or you know, someone's left the company, you've got a opening, you can't just not ship, because there's nobody there to do it, right? You got to step into it. And that's, uh, that's, that's really powerful. Yeah, it is. Definitely. Well, Patricia, I'm really grateful for your time. I'm grateful for the collaboration that we've gotten to do in the past. And, and now you're the privilege of thoughtfulness as we try to help share what we've learned along the way in building great software, uh, which has got so much to do with the, the world we inhabit, users we care about, and the, the data that we have to take care of for everybody in the future. Yeah. So, um, you know, curious, like if there's one, one resource that you would want to provide all developers, right? And we're painting a big tent of developers, all the roles we talked about. If you're a product owner, if you're a product manager, if you're an engineer, if you're an engineering lead, if you're a UXer, if you're a technical writer, 
what would be the the one resource that you want to provide all of these developers of software? Well, I guess I think that rather than a resource, I'd say a little wisdom that I would like to provide is to think about the fact that human beings are story making machines. The story is the way that we make meaning and it's how we communicate to everyone. And so no matter what your role is, I recommend understanding a little bit about storytelling and then pulling that into everything. You know, explain your PRD as a story, explain the user's flow through your products as a story, explaining the interactions between the elements of your service as a story. If you can do that, if you can get it across to people, all of those things, it is almost like an on-the-fly unit test of mm. your of your idea. Does the story play out? Can you get to the end? Did, you know, did your character find the treasure? Uh, are there too many characters and it's convoluted and confusing? You know, these are all the things that can come up in the process of telling the story and give you that feedback that you're on the right track or not. That is awesome. Uh Patricia, thank you for your uh, your intelligence. Thank you for your wisdom. Thank you for inviting me on the show, Sam. I'm excited to see where this series goes. Hi, my name is Lorena Poland. I'm a technical writer at Datastax. I've been here for seven and a half years. I've worked on both the commercial and the open source software products that Datastax is involved with, Apache Cassandra, as well as Apache Spark and Apache Solar. I was the primary writer of the Datastax Graph product that allows Cassandra to be used with graphs. In listening to the podcast that Sam and Patricia had talking about the role of technical writing in software, I was interested in a number of points. For instance, Sam and Patricia both felt that telling the story was a very important point. A lot of people don't think that technical writing has anything to do with a story. But in fact, stories are important in a wide variety of different arenas, and technical writing is no no different than any other. Sam uh, brought up, and Patricia really sort of expanded on the idea that if the documentation is good, oftentimes people will assume the software is good. In other words, the documentation oftentimes is one of the primary experiences that users who have not really delved into your product first get their feeling for what your product is about. And if the documentation is not good, a lot of times people won't go much further into checking out your software. That's especially true in open source. People depend on the documentation in the community so much. They also discuss the idea of the two pizza team, a team that's small enough that you can feed everyone on two pizzas. It's an interesting idea. I think that it allows everyone to really feel part of a team and that everyone is a team member. And so you don't get siloed into different aspects of the work. They did talk about small teams having needing to have at least four elements, a product manager who is kind of the architect of what the product is going to do, the software engineer who is the make-it-so person, including a UX person for the design to make the user experience one that is useful, and then the tech writer. Tech writers tend to play a lot of different roles. I know that I certainly had an impact on some of the products that I've worked on just from the initial testing that I do to try and figure out how we're going to write about the use, the cases for which our products are a good fit. 
Lastly, I think that tech writers always have to be cognizant of the fact that the maintenance of the full life cycle of a product will be a long process. A product will generally be online for years and the documentation for that will need to be updated as bugs or changes are made. Not many other people think about that particular aspect, but uh, like the support teams, the tech writing team is usually on board until the very end of the service life of a product. I thought it was a great talk. There are more talks coming up in Sam's podcast, so stay tuned for what's coming next. Thank you so much for tuning in to today's episode of the Open Source Data Podcast, hosted by Datastax's Chief Strategy Officer, Sam Ramji. We're privileged and excited to feature many more guests who will share their perspectives on the future of software, so please stay tuned. If you haven't already done so, subscribe to the series to be notified when a new conversation is released. And feel free to drop us any questions or feedback at opensourcedata at datastacks.com.